Hello, Fight fans, and welcome to a special Ultimate Fighter-themed edition of the MMA Cutmen. I'm your host, Kevin Mendelson, alongside me, Marcus Schmidley from MMAinterviews.tv. Marcus, last time we heard from you, you were feeling a bit under the weather. How are you doing after a week? I'm hanging in there. I'm doing a lot better than Alistair Overeem because I passed my pre-fight drug test. We have drug tests now? Oh, well, I thought we did, so I guess I just peed into a cup randomly. Well, I there are better ways to <laughs> waste time, or worse ways, I guess. It's time! As Marcus mentioned, Alistair Overeem, pre-fight drug test. He may or may not be out of uh, UFC 146. He's got a heavyweight championship fight with Junior Dos Santos. Maybe... And what happened with the ream? Well, what happened is he had, you know, twice the allowable limit of uh, testosterone in his system. And his A sample was flagged for that elevated testosterone that exceeded 10 to 1 levels. Uh, the 6 to 1 limit is is what I've read and heard is the norm. It's interesting. The more I read on this, Kevin, I, I'm finding people are a little shocked. Why is 6 to 1? Why is elevated levels of testosterone even the norm to begin with? Why are these guys given any leniency? Why isn't 4 to 1 or 3 to 1 or or God forbid 2 to 1 the norm inside mixed martial arts? And I, I from reading Keith Kaiser's statements, he says, you know, we don't want guys testing positive when their natural hormone levels are just higher than the average males. So we're giving some people a leeway. That said, you know, 10 to 14 to 1, any of those numbers are are a lot ahead of six to one. I'd be curious to test just any random regular Joe on the street. And, you know, if there was a way that we could do this test to see how how this would stack up to, like I said, regular average Joes like you and me and and compare that to to these fighters that, like you said, are running around four and a half, five to one, six to one with a legal limit. How in the world? What do you have to take to get to 14 to one on your testosterone to Wow. Well, I mean, you know, that that's the huge question. You know, it's it's going to be tough for us to really crack this open and, and get into the heavy meat and potatoes of this without knowing all the facts. And obviously, we don't know if Alistair Overeem's even been pulled from the 146 title fight he has. We can speculate on who's going to fill in. I'm sure there's a list of uh, of willing and and able competitors out there who fit the bill as far as guys that have earned that title shot. Um I'm interested, though, to see what happens, what he chooses to do with this B sample. There's this idea that he has this, uh, another opportunity that uh, would, would make him eligible to receive a fight license for UFC 146 if the B sample passed, but he has to request that B sample be tested. That's just kind of uh, one of the curveballs thrown into this. Another thing I'm kind of confused about is why we allow these guys to go ahead and get conditional licenses when... We don't know if they're going to be able to pass these tests, you know, in hindsight. Uh, I'm reading something about Alistair Overeem receiving a conditional license by the Nevada State Athletic Commission to compete against Brock Lesnar at UFC 141. Now, the requirement for that fight to take place was that he also pass his next two random tests. So what happens then with the Brock Lesnar fight? He just absolutely dominated Brock Lesnar. Does that fight go to a no contest now? Because... He has to pass one of these two. Well, if they follow the same standard that uh, that King Mo Lawal had last week that we talked about, this is probably that fight will probably get changed to a no contest. But then it all depends on what the B sample turns up. And he's got a hearing on April 24th. So that's a full month before the fight with uh, Junior Dos Santos to decide, OK, what's happening here? Let's test this B sample. And if that one comes back negative or it comes back dirty, then, yeah, I would imagine you're going to see a no contest for for the for the Brock Lesnar fight. You're going to see him leaving Zufa, which, ironically enough, isn't going to hurt Alistair Overeem the same way it hurts King Mo Luol and, and other fighters that have that have come up dirty in their tests because he's got other options. Well, I don't, I don't think that Dana White will cut Alistair Overeem for two reasons. One, he's the K1 World Kickboxing Champion. He could go back to kickboxing, make a ton of money, and no one would ever hear from him again in, in MMA. Second part of that is th- there's a fight with Fedor out there. Fedor's not going to be a part of the UFC. That's just looming. And you're asking somebody else to come snatch up Alistair Overeem and Fedor Emelianenko and make that super fight happen. 
and that's not going to put money in Dana White's pocket. So I don't think they benefit from cutting him. I just think like Chael Sonnen, like Tiago Silva, like all these guys, you know, if he doesn't clear his name here, he's going to have to face a stiff fine. He's going to have to face a lengthy time sitting out. I mean, we may be talking about a guy who has to actually request a license instead of just getting himself opportunities to fight after he has a little probationary period. He may have to go out there and prove he's capable of fighting without, you know, pissing hot, as they say. Well, and this just gives everybody that's ever questioned over him that much more ammo to go, well, look at how huge this guy is. What is he on? And then you get a you get a hot test that says, oh, well, he's on elevated. He's on testosterone boosters that are used to up your testosterone when it's time to cycle down from steroids to keep your body regular. Well, everything I've also read says that he passed the test after he he fought Brock Lesnar. So he was clean. He, he had a random test, just one of these surprise tests. He gets popped 14 to 1, which is well over the Nevada State Athletic Commission's 6 to 1 ratio. Now, you and I probably don't even understand the 6 to 1 ratio. There's, not, there's probably a lot of this we don't understand. But what we know right now is that the UFC 146 title fight between Junior Dos Santos and Alistair Overeem, probably not happening. So who would, you, who would we go to to find... That substitute. I mean, there's there's guys outside the UFC that, you know, maybe have a have a say in what what's coming next. There's other guys on the UFC 146 card because that's just a card full of heavyweights. Uh, we've already gotten a rule out. Frank Mir and Cain Velasquez, their fight's going to go on as scheduled. Dana White has already already made that proclamation. Right, which I, I don't agree with, and I, I don't think either of us probably understands. I mean, we both saw Frank Mir rip apart Big Nog's arm, you know. That was a rematch between two guys that everyone else in the division thought of as the best submission fighters, and there was this lingering idea that Frank Mir had to win again because he beat Big Nog on staff. Well, he went out there and he proved he was a better fighter a second time around. I don't know of a more deserving fighter for a random title shot in the heavyweight division than Frank Mir. But I guess, you know, there are a couple strike force guys. Maybe they look to the winner of... Uh, Daniel Cormier and Josh Barnett. Maybe uh, maybe they find uh, a fight for Antonio Silva. Maybe Roy Nelson. I mean, you know, are there deserving guys? Roy yes. Nelson's already been nuked by Dos Santos. Correct. Fabrizio Verdun. Maybe he's a guy that steps in. Short notice. Takes a fight for a title. Um, there are only a few deserving guys. There are a couple guys like Mark Hunt that the people are rallying for. That doesn't necessarily make them worthy of the title shot. Well, the funny thing is Mark Hunt has, I believe, a 3-1 and record in the UFC. He's 8-7 and overall, so nothing that's, that's ever going to stand out and go, look at this guy's record. But he's 3-1 and in the UFC. As you said, a, a, a guy the fans are rallying behind, a fan favorite, uh, a holdover from the Pride days. We saw him get a big win in Japan uh, right around Christmas time, and why not somebody like that? Other, other than he's got a fight with Stefan Struve, and that's going to be enough of a challenge. And then people go, well, if you're going to throw Hunt in there, why not throw Stefan Struve in? Well, I understand anyone who wants to sit and say that <clears throat> Mark Hunt beat Czech Congo. He's on a three-fight winning streak in the heavyweight division. That means a lot. Why not give him a shot? That makes sense. But here's the problem. He's 8-7. and seven. And if you're going to reward heavyweights who are 8-7 and seven with title shots, <clears throat> what you're saying is that there's plenty of guys that you're willing to overlook. Uh, Mark Hunt is a very good heavyweight fighter. I don't think he's deserving of the ultimate accomplishment in the UFC's biggest division. Junior Dos Santos is a guy who Mark Hunt actually has a legitimate chance of putting away. He wouldn't have to worry about wrestling or submissions. It would be a strict striking match. But I don't think it's necessarily fair for Junior Dos Santos. So who does this hurt more in the short term? The UFC's heavyweight division, which has really been maligned as as being... I don't know, light on light on talent outside of maybe the top five guys. And when you take Brock Lesnar out of the equation, maybe that weakens the the pool a little bit more. But when you bring in the strike force guys, you bring in Bigfoot Silva, you bring Verdum back, uh, you're guessing that or we're probably guessing that Barnett or uh, or Daniel Cormier comes back after after the after the Grand Prix. Right, you've, I mean, you've got LeVar Johnson, Shane Del Rosario, Chad Griggs. I mean, there, there are plenty of 
legit strike force heavyweights that are going to be competing in the UFC. Most of them aren't going to be competing at the top of the heavyweight division. And so this is where the problem is. I mean, Antonio Silva is a guy who I think a lot of us think can probably compete with some of these guys, but is he going to win? I don't know. I mean, you know, he had a hard time against Mike Kyle. He had a hard time against Fedor for a little bit. Um, well, if you want to look at just a straight switch out Alistair Overeem for Antonio Silva, you're still taking a guy that's just big and putting him up against... Uh, well, they're all big. I mean, they're heavyweights. Yeah, but you look at Junior Dos Santos. He walks around at a good 230 pounds. The heavyweight limit's 265. Roy Nelson pushes that uh, every chance he gets. So, yes, they're all big, but there's varying degrees of big. I'm in favor of Frank Mir or Cain Velasquez. And, in fact, you know, if that means you have to take Junior Dos Santos off this card and you just let, you know, Frank Mir and Cain Velasquez fight for the opportunity for that title shot... That's what you have to do. And then you find someone else to fill in. Now, you know, there have been other rumors swirling about potential guys that want this opportunity, and we'll get into that later. But right now, if it were me and I was Dana White, I would definitely think about making Mir and Velasquez the headline. I'd find another heavyweight outside the UFC who'd like to fill in. uh, And you, you just... Get two other heavyweights to fill that all-heavyweight card. Would you give Junior Dos Santos a non-title fight? No, this isn't Bellator. I mean, this guy earned that title shot on Fox TV by beating Cain Velasquez. I don't want him fighting for anything less than the title while he holds that title. We'll come back and talk a little more UFC as the show rolls on. But first things first... Hector, I kill you! That's a good audio clip. That's Alexander Schlemenko, in case anybody has no idea what that is, and that's probably 99% of the listening audience. Trust me, we wouldn't know either if we weren't in the business. Uh, This afternoon in India, Super Fight League had their second card. Alexander Schlemenko absolutely dismantles the Minowa man. This guy's had almost 90 professional fights. I think he dabbles in professional wrestling. He's just... uh, it hurt to watch. Rocky Balboa was a guy who needed a Russian nemesis, and he got himself Ivan Drago. Everyone needs a Russian nemesis, and Hector Lombard has one, Alexander Shlomenko. That's the Hector that's being referred to in this clip. Hector, I kill you! Alexander Shlomenko would like to have himself a fight with Hector Lombard in Bellator. Uh, he could, he would even like to have one on the street somewhere if he would, if he could get it happening. Also in Super Fight League, Todd Duffy, former UFC heavyweight, has not won a fight in three years. I guess I should say had not won a fight in over three years. That being said, oh, big left hook. He is is on his way to being out. That is it. Big left hook by Todd Duffy. Use the footwork that you're talking about, Cannon. He landed that big left hook. Just got it before Grove did. You know, Grove got that one done power as well. Over before it even got the start. Absolutely annihilated Neil Grove. 34 seconds on a first-round knockout. Yeah, it was an interesting fight because both of these guys, I think they were probably on the cusp of getting a call-up to to a bigger shot. I I don't know if it was Bellator or Strikeforce or or what have you, but... um, you know, Neil Grove's a guy, he's been around a long time, he's up there in age, he's from South Africa, he's a good fighter, and, and Todd Duffy, you know, he's interesting, as you mentioned, hasn't won in three years, he only fought four times in those three years, and he'd lost to Mike Russo in UFC, and Alistair Overeem in K1 Dynamite uh, at, at a 2010 December 31st New Year's Eve edition show, so I don't know if Todd Duffy's on his way marching back to the UFC, but it was a nice win for him, hopefully we see him more active. And he probably, as you mentioned, might get the call to strike force. I don't know if he would go to Bellator. I, I feel like, I don't want to say Todd Duffy would think that Bellator is beneath him, but having fought where he's fought, I guess if you're fighting in Super Fight League where nobody knows where you are, then I suppose any kind of uh, any kind of exposure would be something that Todd Duffy would like to well, see. Well, there's, there's the MFC in Canada. I mean, there's a couple organizations around the country that Todd Duffy would, would easily be able to fit in and, and get good competitive fights. There's a couple decent fighters outside the UFC in the heavyweight division. A guy that would not go to Bellator would probably not go back to Strike Force, no matter how much money you gave him, Fedor Emelianenko. Haven't heard that name much recently, other than a couple of easy squash wins in the past year. 
Maybe he's going to fight Bobby Lashley in June in Russia. I think we all hope not. I mean, there's enough quality competitors out there. He shouldn't have to get a paycheck to go out there and fight Bobby Lashley. Bobby Lashley would make a ton of money knowing he's going to that fight, being sent to slaughter. He's got probably no chance of winning. Couldn't even beat Chad Griggs. I mean, that's how bad Bobby Lashley's MMA career has gone. Probably needs to call Vince McMahon. You know, ask for his job back. Maybe WrestleMania next year can be Bobby Lashley and Brock Lesnar, battle of the <laughs> former MMA fighters. And, and that might actually sell. No one's going to pay to see Bobby Lashley fight Fedor. So hopefully Fedor can find himself a better competition. And we were looking at, you know, other other heavyweight fighters that could either jump into the void in the UFC that could potentially be opened up by Alistair Overeem. Maybe even replenish the Strike Force roster a little bit, unless they're dissolving that division after the Grand Prix ends. What about guys like Tim Sylvia or Andre Arlovsky? Even them going to fight Fedor. I know they've both lost to Fedor in the past, but why not now? They're both on uh, trying to re- resuscitate their careers. Now, I don't know if they're on winning streaks. I mean, who, who you know? No one's paying enough attention to Tim Sylvia or Andre Arlovsky to know. But I will tell you this: both of them are former UFC heavyweight champions. Both of them have that name recognition. And and even if that was during an era of the UFC heavyweight division being absolutely horrible, according to Dana White, these guys were in that division. So these are the fights for Fedor. Fedor, if you're listening, tell whoever it is that you need to tell, you need to get yourself in the UFC or you're going to end your career fighting the Bobby Lashleys of the world. I don't think Vadim Finkelstein can understand it's a shame he's not doing any of this show, isn't it? I, it is. I think Vadim and any other M1 management, any real fight management should be listening to us. We're offering you suggestions here on the MMA Cutmen Show with Marcus Schmidley. I'm Kevin Mendelson. Moving away from the heavyweights. Let's get away from the really big guys that lumber and punch and just want to knock your head off. Bellator 64, the bantamweight quarterfinals begin last night. Travis Marks, uh, a unanimous decision over Masakatsu Ueda. Hiroshi Nakamura, a unanimous decision over Rodrigo Lima to get that tournament underway. Uh, in the featherweight semifinals, Marlon Sandro, uh, split decision over Popo Bezerra. And Ben Askren defends his welterweight championship against Douglas Lima. I don't think he's related to Rodrigo Lima, but still, all four fights going to decisions. A lot of wrestling going on on that card. A lot of unhappy fans at well, that. Well, yeah, I mean, it was it was an interesting fight uh, between Askren and Lima. I was very entertained with the first couple of rounds. Douglas Lima was looking for a lot of submissions, and I thought he'd had really good armbar attempts, really good triangle chokes attempts, but Ben Askren has some of the best submission defense in the game, and he's just a good wrestler. Uh, I, I was kind of noticing that he doesn't have a stand-up game Strictly because he knows that he has to stack guys when he takes them down and punch from on top. So why waste the energy striking on the feet when you need that energy to punch guys in the face when you take them down? Because he will take guys down. And he's going to take anybody in Bellator down to the ground. And Douglas Lima was a guy who just couldn't find himself getting up and mounting enough offense. And even though he's a good submission stylist and threw together some nifty submission attempts, he wasn't able to lock one up. So... All those attempts didn't mean anything, and at the end of the day, Ben Askren walks away with W. And it's always difficult when you're wrestling a guy that has been in the Olympics, was an absolute monster at the University of Missouri. As much as I hate to give the devil his due, I'll do it. Uh, he's just an absolute killer on the ground. Well, he's he's one of those guys I think people will compare with uh, Josh Koscheck, Matt Hughes, George St. Pierre, as far as wrestling in the welterweight division go. I made a comment yesterday he was a top five welterweight I don't know if he is. I don't know if he isn't. Uh, when I watch him fight, I'm bored out of my mind, but I can't help but respect the talent because he's one of those guys that just exudes confidence. He doesn't care what fans think. He just wants to win these fights, even if he has to grind guys down. And, and in a way, you know, it's similar to kind of how Marlon Sandro fights. I, I was making a, an effort to watch and see if Marlon Sandro was a guy who can get back to the top of the featherweight division, fought a young very similar fighter in Popo Bezerra, and he took home a split decision. As of late, he's taken home some split decisions, you know, littered in with a, a couple knockouts. But Marlon Sandoz, a guy in the featherweight division, I, if it weren't for the fact that he was a teammate of Jose Aldo, I'd love to see those two fight. I, I think it would be a dynamic fight with fireworks, and I think Marlon Sandro would hold his own. Now we get the bantamweight tournament started, and those are the guys you always hear about in the UFC and, and 
really just from fans around the world, they always want to see the smaller fighters go because you rarely ever get decisions there. Well, we had two of them last night. As I mentioned, Travis Marks over Masakatsu Ueda and Hiroshi Nakamura over Rodrigo Lima. You gave us a little insight into Nakamura and Ueda last week. What went wrong maybe for uh, Masakatsu Ueda in his fight with Travis Marks? And what went right for Nakamura against Lima that really they, they fought a similar style but came out on different ends. Well, what's interesting is that both of these guys are used to fighting in featherweight division in Japan. I mean, these guys are used to fighting at 135, 132 pounds over there in in their native countries, you know, fights in the rings and, and, and all that stuff. And they decided to cut uh, a little bit of weight here and step into the 135-pound division in Bellator with a cage. I don't know how familiar either of them are with this. But Matsukatsu, I thought he won the fight, I'll be honest. And, and I'm not saying that just because I've mentioned him. I thought he won two rounds. Um, but the thing is, the judges in America aren't the same as the judges in Japan. They're not going to reward him with submission attempts here. And he, I don't think he did enough damage from the top. He lost to a decent fighter. I thought Travis Marks looked actually pretty impressive. Uh, Nakamura's an interesting guy. I don't know how far he can go in this division in general. But I thought he fought a really, really solid fight against Rodrigo Lima. And I'm interested to see how far he can progress in this tournament because he's kind of a dark horse now. Not a guy I expected to do a whole lot. Ueda was the guy coming in with 15 wins and one loss. I thought he would have been the guy that really could pop and and set this tournament apart from other tournaments because he's a Japanese fighter. He's 34 years old and he's really good. Nakamura's a guy I'm going to have to pay more attention to you know, in, in the following weeks. And he's going to get Travis Marks in, in that next matchup in the uh, in the Bantamweight tournament. We'll have Marcus Galvao and Ed West and then Alexis Villa and Luis Alberto Noguera in the other quarterfinal matchups. We'll talk about those a little bit later. Let's go back to Ben Askren and, and the wrestling. And you kind of got a little bit upset last night. A lot of people, a lot of, I don't want to say American fight fans because that's our general audience here. I don't want to make everybody angry. But you see so many cards where you just get you, you see uh, you see fighters get just blasted by being called quote unquote lay and pray fighters, and and so many people go to these events and they want to see knockouts, they want to see blood, and then they get the wrestlers. George Saint Pierre, another prime example of of a fighter that has just been lit into for his style. Why is wrestling getting such a bad rap in the MMA world? Well, I don't know if it's a cultural thing or if it's just people want to be entertained when they tune in to see these fights. But for some reason, while I'm willing to admit that Ben Askren is a talented guy, even if I don't find him wildly entertaining, there are people out there who are going to throw around homophobic slurs. There's some name calling that goes on. And I think there's just a general discontent with the way wrestlers fight. I don't understand it because it's mixed martial arts. There, There's not one aspect of the fight game right now that's proving to be any better than any of the other ones. Brazilian jiu-jitsu does not have the upper hand on boxing because you you can't beat a guy standing up if your goal is to get submissions unless you're just wildly successful and you can throw up a flying scissor heel hook or something like that against Anderson Silva. The, my main point is that five fans last night showed me that th- there's an impatience that comes with this. Maybe it's just it was a Bellator fight. Maybe people don't like Ben Askren. I know you yourself are not a fan of Ben Askren because of his background. I'm not a fan of Ben Askren, the guy. The fighter, I will watch, and I'll enjoy him, his skills and what he can do. Well, and I think more people need to be that. I think more people need to just watch these fights and appreciate the talent level of the fighters and who's picking up the W's and the L's and stop worrying so much about is this guy entertaining? And if he's not, is he a homo? I mean, there's just an idea that comes with this, that if, I, if this guy does not entertain me and he wants to lay on another dude for 15 minutes, he's he's questionable as far as his sexuality is concerned. He's not a guy I want to pay to watch fight, and I'm going to chastise him on the internet. And, and I wasn't even on forums or message boards. I was just seeing it on my Facebook. There were people who are adamant that Ben Askren is synonymous with, with a bunch of, you know, racist, homophobic slurs because of what he chooses to do to make his money in the fight game. And and it just drives me up a wall. I, I need fight fans. I need fight fans to think a little bit more before they say stuff like this. Because it's one of the things, along with steroids, 
along with uh, you know the future of the women's division. It's it's one of the things that's holding MMA back from being popular. When you label people, you don't even know. And there was a great quote Ben Askren said uh, last night after retaining his championship. Quote, I was told you Canadians like fighting. If you don't like the groundwork, there's a sport they call boxing. It's not as fun, though. I suggest you keep coming here and watching my ass whippings. End quote. Well, I know I agree. I mean, boxing is a different sport for a reason. Boxing is not as successful as it used to be for a reason. Boxing is not the UFC for a reason. There are not top-level boxers in the UFC for a reason. Ben Askren is not a boxer. He's a wrestler. He's a very good wrestler. He's a world-class mixed martial artist. And I think people are forgetting that it's mixed martial arts. They expect guys to go in there, and, and we're spoiled. We really are. We expect Leonard Garcia against Korean Zombie. We expect Nam Fan against Leonard Garcia. There are fighters who go out there and they grind. John Fitch, Ben Askren, you know, even George St. Pierre. I'm not always going to pay 60 bucks to watch these guys fight, but it doesn't mean that they're bad fighters. But then you get wrestlers of the caliber of, I don't know, let's just throw a name out, Dan Henderson. Everybody loves Dan Henderson. Now, is that just because he can wrestle, but he also throws bombs? Or is it... What is the appeal that that makes Dan Henderson a better quote unquote wrestling draw than Ben Askren, than George St. Pierre, than than John Fitch, and those such guys? I think Ben. I, I, well, I think Dan Henderson's a guy who, on paper, has wrestling credentials. I don't think he's a very good wrestler. I mean, he got taken down by Jake Shields in, in a Strikeforce middleweight title fight for four rounds. We saw Jake Shields, who's kind of a natural, you know, tiny guy compared to Dan Henderson. We saw him lay on Dan Henderson. So, you know, the the wrestling defense takedown defense isn't there for Dan Henderson. He might have a decent top game. He's obviously able to smother some guys. He took around from Anderson Silva when they fought in the UFC before being choked out. I don't think Dan Henderson's wrestling is near the level for mixed martial arts that it is for wrestling. I think he's adapted his wrestling game. He's used the Greco-Roman game. He likes, like Randy Couture, to use you know the clinch and, and up against the cage. And I think he's just developed this idea that if I don't Stay if I stay out of harm's way and I and I get out of there real quick, I can land my one punch. So it's better to live another day than go out there just swinging and looking for one, you know, blaze of glory. And I think Dan Henderson's been able to last as long as he has because he uses his wrestling more defensively now to keep guys from beating the heck out of his chin. And he lands that that H bomb that Mauro Anala <laughs> loves to call it. Because he's able to get guys backpedaling because they can't mount any offense against him. Michael Bisping's a perfect example. We saw UFC 100. We loved UFC 100. We loved everything about that knockout. Because Michael Bisping was not doing to Dan Henderson what you need to do to beat Dan Henderson. And when Dan Henderson found an opening and he'd used his defensive wrestling, he was able to lob one of those grenades at Michael Bisping's chin and it just exploded and everyone loved it. How about Dan Henderson as a as a dark horse candidate to take that Junior Dos Santos fight at, at UFC 146? I know Henderson's been on the shelf since the since the Shogun Hua fight, and he's been lobbying for a title fight somewhere. He doesn't care if it's welterweight or middleweight, excuse me, uh, a light heavyweight waiting for the winner of John Jones and Rashad Evans, or why not jump up and wait to Junior Dos Santos? Pack on 15 pounds. I know it sounds easy, and it's obviously very difficult. But as we mentioned earlier, Dos Santos walks around 230, 235. If, if Henderson goes up to about 215, 220, the weight advantage isn't that great for Dos Santos because both of these guys can just throw haymakers. Why, wouldn't, why couldn't we see maybe Dan Henderson take Alistair Overeem's spot? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. You know, as, as, as something we were talking about earlier, guys who can step up and can compete for Junior Dos Santos' title and more importantly have, have deserved that opportunity. Dan Henderson's one of those guys. You know, if, if you compare his resume at middleweight with his resume at heavyweight, you find he lost to Jake Shields in his last middleweight fight. It was a good fight, and I think a lot of people were entertained by the first round, thought Dan Henderson was going to win, but he, he lost. So he's coming off a loss in that division, and he beat the great Fedor Emelianenko in his only big heavyweight title fight of recent memory. And it, it was for a title that most of us don't even acknowledge. It was... Who's the best fighter on the planet right now? I think Dan Henderson stole that from Fedor. And and I, I don't know that I mean that to say that he's a better mixed martial artist than John Jones or George St. Pierre. But in our hearts, Dan Henderson's resume is now littered with great fighters 
and solid victories. And I think he'd earned enough by beating Fedor that, yeah, if he wants to step in and add 15 pounds and go in there against a guy who probably will kill him, I'm all for it. I'll pay to watch it. I think everyone else will. That's why you make those big fights. Speaking of big fights, coming up next weekend, we've got a pretty solid fight card, or a pair of fight cards, excuse me. This is actually going to be a pretty nice back-to-back week of fights if you're a fan of Bellator, if you're a fan of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. First up, on Friday night, we're going to have Bellator 65. This is something they've been building towards, two title fights. You're going to have your featherweight semifinal between Daniel Strauss and Mike Corey. You're going to have your bantamweight quarterfinals with Marcus Galvao and Ed West, and then Alexis Villa and Luis Alberto Noguera. That's a stacked card. Well, and it gets better. Lyman Good will be on the card. Chris McCrea, a former Ultimate Fighter competitor, will be facing Edson Barbosa's brother, Elton Barbosa. I mean, this thing has two title fights. Zach Funsize Makovsky against Eduardo <laughs> Dudu Dantas. This could be uh, nicknames it, of the year. This is this is one of those cards that really kicks off the end of the Season 6 tournaments, and it, it, it starts firing. I mean, 65, 66, and 67, and even 68 are going to be dynamite. I'm so excited to see what this card can give us as far as violence is concerned. And then, ironically enough, you're looking at a UFC card the next night, or the next afternoon, as the case is for us here in Seattle. Uh, I think this is a 12.30 fight card start. UFC on Fuel TV number two. Their second foray there. The first one uh, was in Omaha, Nebraska a few months ago. And when you look at this card, Alexander Gustafsson and Tiago Silva, Alessio Sakara and Brian Stan. Siahar Badaherzada. Thank you. And Paulo Tiago. And then Diego Nunes and Dennis Seaver are your top four fights. I love this card. I know that may come as a shock to you. It doesn't have the big star power that I think a lot of people would be looking for to go into a place like Sweden and woo the Swiss. Are they the Swiss? Are they the Swedes? What are they? Swedes. Yeah, the Swedes. I, I don't think this has the name draws that we're looking for, but... Brian Stan against Alessio Sakara. That's going to be yeah. That's going to be a, a huge fight. fight. That's one of those entertaining quote unquote fights that everyone seems to want in the UFC. Rampage Jackson asks for them. Evidently, Nick Diaz wants them. These but they don't the, pay him enough, right? These are the guys that get those fights. These are two bangers that are going to go in there. They're going to box. These guys are going to have fun. They're going to hit each other in the face, and everyone wins. Uh, I, I like Paulo Tiago against Ciara Badharzada. It, it's an interesting fight in the division because. This guy used to train with Jason Mayhem Miller, so you you kind of get some insight into see what kind of quality people uh, Mayhem has in his camp. Dennis Seaver, Diego Nunes is an interesting fight. I like that fight because you're going to have a featherweight competitor come out. That guy could be a challenger for Jose Aldo. And then you just look at the rest of the card. It's filled with European standouts. Poppy Abetti is a guy who we both saw lose to Tiago Alves, but he's a big jacked dude. Brad Pickett from England, fun fight. Francis Carmon is a very, very entertaining fighter out of France. And I love watching Surreal do a body fight. I think he's an entertaining six foot five light heavyweight. He just goes in there. You know, he's a former world kickboxing champion. He doesn't have a ground game. He get he can lock up some submissions. But this is one of those cards that I love because I feel like people actually get to learn something. When you watch fighters you don't know and you watch these guys that have been littered on these prospect watch lists and these top 10 European, these are the guys. I mean, these they're getting their shot. They're going to be seen in, in L.A. and Vegas and, and you know all the big American cities if they can win in these European countries. And so, in a way, this is like an ultimate fighter. Yeah, these are the guys that everyone clamors to see when they have their fights and go, man, why aren't we seeing these guys in the UFC? Why hasn't Dana signed them up? And now they're getting their shot. And now we're going to see what they can do. It's going to be, like you say, you're right. The The cards with the lesser-named guys are always the more fun ones because you don't have the pressure of, okay, we have these two huge guys to headline. Brian Stan might be the biggest name on this card, and he's not even fighting in the main event. Right. Well, this is a card I think you and I will both agree. Because it's in that part of the world, I would have loved to have seen Joaquin Hellboy Hansen on it. Um He's always publicly said he doesn't want to fight in the UFC. And that being what it is, they've stacked this card with guys uh, from Europe, from all parts of Europe that are just really solid, uh, from France to UK, you know, Sweden, Norway. I'm excited because I get a chance to sit down and learn something when I watch these guys. And I think for the regular fight fans, you get a chance to be a part of something brand new. Tom DeBlass or James Head 
or Poppy or Betty. These guys aren't well known to hardcore fans. You get a chance to be on the bandwagon before everyone else. You can say you were there when he was just a newcomer in the UFC, and it's really fun. I, I'm I'm so stoked about cards like this, and and I, I think it's a great opportunity for people. If you're a gambler, you know you want to go out there and throw down some money. These are the fun cards to do it. You don't know who's going to win any single fight. Something the UFC can look at as well is how they're going to stack up with Bellator when they're on essentially even footing. Not a whole lot of people have Fuel TV. We've mentioned that before. Not a whole lot of not a whole lot of people have uh, MTV two, and the ones that do, they aren't watching Bellator for some reason. But these are the cards that you are absolutely trying to draw in the most people that you can. Who's going to win this ratings fight between well, these cards? I think the UFC on Fuel two is going to is going to get higher just because it's the UFC. But does that mean it should? I don't know. I mean, if you're talking about big name power, I think that the Bellator card has just as many big names on it. As the UFC card, I mean, Cole Conrad is a champion. Zach Makovsky is a champion. Eduardo Dudu Dantas is a guy who probably should be uh, considered one of the top 15, top 20 guys in that division. And then you've got guys like Daniel Strauss, very competitive. Alexis V is a guy, even at his extended age, thought to be one of the better, you know, bantamweight, flyweight fighters in the world. Lyman Good, uh, a former champion. So I think that this Bellator card, though it's only got you know seven or eight fights announced right now, is a better quality card because it does have those bigger name guys. You got two title fights, but I love both of them, and I think that's why next weekend for me, I think for you, is going to be a huge weekend for MMA because we really get to soak up a lot of quality fights, and we're going to have highlights as best we can get them next week when we come back to you with the MMA Cutmen. I'm Kevin Mendelson. That's Marcus Schmidley. When we come back, you're not going to want to miss this. We're going to have John Albert. UFC fighter, Ultimate Fighter alum. He's going to be joining us on the phone next. We are the MMA Cutman, and we'll be right back. Big John. Big John. Every morning at the mine, you can see Welcome back. This is round two. We are the MMA Cutman. I'm Kevin Mendelson with Marcus Schmidley. And on the line right now, we have Ultimate Fighter alumnus, Ultimate Fighter competitor right now. He's got a one-in-one record in the UFC, always looking to build on it. John Albert from Puyallup, Washington. John, welcome. How you doing? What's going on, Kevin? Hey, Marcus. <laughs> How you guys doing? So far, so good. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, tell our listeners as much as you can, if, if you can, uh, what the Ultimate Fighter House is like. I mean, we all hear about guys on reality TV. They all say, oh, you know, we don't get any TV, we don't get any Internet. What kind of isolation do you guys have from the real world? Uh, it is pretty isolated, like 100%, because um, they run off the premise of, you know, the secrets and what could happen, and build, they build off it trying to be alive when it's not, you know, so they don't want the outside world to know really what's going on. So, so they don't, in, my, so, in my, my season, no phones, no internet, no le- you can't write letters, you know, no contact with anybody. So you can't, uh, you can't talk to family, can't let anybody know how things nope. are going? Oh, man. How do you deal with something like that when when everyone probably wants to know how everything's going and and you can't tell them but uh, you're just there, just competing? Well, I took it as a vacation. Like it was such a great opportunity for me. Like I kept thinking every day how great of an opportunity it was. Like yeah, I miss my family and you know and I wish I could like talk to them and get comfort or maybe support you know. But I mean that was another test on the show just to see how mentally mentally strong you were for sure. Now, after after you won your way into the Ultimate Fighter house, you lost your first fight to John Dodson, who, of course, ended up winning the tournament on the bantamweight side. How difficult is the wait? And it, what was it about seven weeks before your first fight? How difficult is that wait? Oh, it sucked, man. Um, when you're not in control like that, I mean, and you know, you depend on your teammates to win your fight so you can have control and choose. I mean, that's another part of the game. Like it's almost like a game. Because, I mean, you don't know when you're fighting or how you're preparing or who you're fighting to prepare for that fight. Like, they, they match you up, and two days later we fought. Whereas uh, on the uh, the new show, they get a whole week to prepare, you know. So they really condensed it for us. So it was, it, was, it was pretty tough because we were on the losing side for four fights, and then, you know, we finally won uh, our fight, and we got to choose, and then they won. They got to choose, and, <laughs> you know, it just it didn't really pan out like I would have liked it. But, I mean... uh 
You would, I was would have ready liked for a better, really. Yeah, I would have liked a better matchup than than John Dodson. Uh, when you lost that fight, how much harder is it to kind of put that behind you right away and go back to being a good teammate and a good training partner? Well, it, it was actually really easy for me because I mean I had I figured that was my opportunity. Now I need to help whoever else that was supposed to be helping me uh, get ready for my fight. So I mean, it was the next day. Even though I was pretty sore and hurt, uh, anybody that needed help, I mean, TJ. I was working pretty uh, pretty extensively with him because, I mean, he really didn't want to work with anybody else because there was a lot of stuff going on in the house where he was showing the moves, and they were actually insiders for the, what, what do they call themselves, the, the leprechauns or whatever, and uh, giving them little information on TJ. So, like, I was his, like, one-on-one partner, and he would work with Diego a lot. So I was pretty much just there for them, you know, because I figured I can learn just as much, too, by being a, being a partner. Now, Don, you're a competitor on Team Bisping, uh, tell us what those training sessions are like, and tell us what he was like when the camera wasn't on him. Was he as supportive uh, of a coach as he looked? Uh, what is what is a guy like Michael Bisping really about when he doesn't have an opportunity to build his brand? Uh, I'd say he's the same person on camera as he was off. Uh, things about the training sessions, though, they were late every day. Uh, he probably came in drunk or hungover <laughs> uh, quite a few times, if not every day. Um, it was his third stint on the show, you know, his third time, and he probably was kind of over it. He he's just, you know, he's a yes man for the UFC. Like, no, you don't want to say no. You want to do your do your boss good and say yes. And so they gave him the opportunity to coach again, and he was just like, of course, I'll do anything for Dana because Dana's giving me this opportunity. So he was kind of over it. But I mean, his personality, like his wit, his humor, the way he was so brass with everybody, was the same off camera it was on. He was talking shit to everybody and. Uh, and supportive wise, he was extremely supportive as a fighter. Like when we were, when he was cornering us, and when we were fighting, he wanted us to win, and he could really feel our pain or, or our effort. But practices go, I felt they could have gone a lot better, or like you know, more set up. Like they would have come in and ask us, well, what do we want to do? It's like, well, we got eight guys from eight different parts all over the country with eight different training backgrounds. And so we all wanted to do something different. Right. And I was kind of hoping that they would come in and take charge. Like, we're just doing this today. Listen to me. You know. Well, what was the number one thing you took away from training with a guy of Michael Bisping's caliber? He obviously has a good camp of people that follow him around. Uh, what was something you took that you could apply and put into your arsenal that you feel like you can use in your UFC career? Well, the one thing we worked on the most, I could say, is how to get up off the mat. Uh, we worked extensively on just guard pushes, uh, retrieving guard, and then using the cage and get, getting up. Because that's visiting his game, if you haven't noticed. Like, Chael Sonnen took him down and they got back up. You right. know, that's what he works on, and he understands that in the fight game that you're on your back, you're losing the match. And he worked extensively with us on getting the hell off the mat, you know. So I'd say that's the best thing I took from it because uh, I was pretty complacent off my back. Um, but he, he definitely helped me get ready to, if I need to, if my if my sub game ain't working, how to just to get up off the mat. Our guest is Tough 14 alum, John Albert. Now, John, I've been following you on social media and, and Facebook for a while now. Uh, I saw that you've uh, you've received your diamond compression shorts. I hear Kenny Florian talking about these on telecast all the time. What do you think of them so far? And, and you know, in your very limited experience with the product, uh, is it something more guys should be using in MMA? And is it something that can solve a little bit of the problem with the growing strike as, as this sport continues to progress? Uh, yes, I have limited experience with it, but the time that I've had with it, honestly, was kind of amazing. Like, it amazed me how comfortable and secure, and I felt like it wasn't even really there. And it's a pretty heavy cup, heavy duty. Like, it's not plastic or compressed. Like, it's got like uh, a really hard case front with good rubber support around the sides. And it's, it feels like it's a half a pound, but when it's on, you don't even feel it there. And it didn't move. Like I forgot it was there after I was done training and I punched myself in it to see how it's feeling. And I really didn't feel anything. The true test is to get kicked in it. And uh, I'm actually thinking about taking it up to training and having someone give it a go. And then I can, I'll really tweet about it, how it works. But besides that, everything else, it's, the best cup I have ever worn, you know, better than the steel uh, tie cups. I mean, it's just the comfortability and the strength, and it just was like, 
It was the best cup. Is 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 it a product, John, that you think that uh, you know the UFC should look into as as something that they should universally have their fighters wearing? Well, I mean, it's all about product placement and branding. Right. And, you know, UFC's got their own brand and they got their own cup. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Uh, so right. I don't see it as them implementing that, uh, which is too bad. Cause they really should. Because I really think it could save a lot of people and just <laughs> make it better for the fighters and more because more comfortable you are the better you fight right you know? now john you said you were uh you were watching uh the ultimate fighter in the new season the live season uh i don't know if did you see last night with uh with what dominic cruz was trying to do with uh with sam cecilia and mike chiesa no unfortunately uh i have a dvr because i trained late at night and i came home and it didn't record so i only got to read read what happened okay you so you, so you still but you at least you know that uh that what was happening with cecilia and and chiesa are training partners in real life and uh yeah. and cruz was trying to to get a little bit of insight to help jeremy larson in their fight have you ever been in a situation like that and if you were or even if you haven't been how would you go about something like that i don't know man i i had some pretty i had high integrity on the show um Brian Caraway, you know, he he's my friend and training partner, or was my training partner prior to the show before he moved to work out with Faber. Um, you know, we were we weren't in, doing insider trading. You know what I mean? We wanted to make it a like a real competition. You know, and I I don't think it's right to be having them pity pit themselves against each other because I mean they're having a hard enough time being in the house and training and being apart from each other because they were such a good support system for each other and they still are it seems like you know they're on opposite teams but i don't think it's right to be like obviously you can they can go online they can figure out what what's going on with their opponent i mean the coaches aren't limited to no internet no phone access you know and that's what our coaches did they went online and try to give us as much insight as they could but i didn't think it was very right to you know be pushing on them and have try to get secrets from them you know because i mean they want each other they, they'd hope to fight each other in the finale you know that'd be my hope if i was uh training with a teammate from opposite teams that i trained with at home you know right and and how much of that really does go on you mentioned it earlier with uh with the guys that that you were on your season with how much of that do you really think goes on maybe in this season or in even past seasons where you try and use basically any advantage you can get in order to make your own team successful I'd say it happens every season, 100% of the time. There's somebody that's either mulling it. I mean, it's impossible to say that it's not happening, you know, because, I mean, everyone wants every bit of advantage as they can because, again, this is probably tougher than anything any normal fighter has to go to, you know, fighting multiple times in short periods of time, not even knowing your opponent, which isn't real what goes on in, in real fighting. You know, it's a part of the reality show, so... I would say it happens every season. It happened last season. I know it happened in the season prior because my friend uh, Len Bentley and teammate was on the season prior. You know, so I, I, I'd say it's prevalent in every season. Now you fought in both the UFC Training Center while you were while you were on the Ultimate Fighter, and you've also fought in in the arenas with at the Palms in Las Vegas, and you also fought in Omaha. What's the difference between fighting in front of just your teammates and Dana White and the judges and just the the small group of people that's at the training center for for the Ultimate Fighter shows, and then the difference in going to the arenas where the crowd's there and and everybody's getting jacked up. Is there any kind of a big difference to how you prepare for those fights? Uh, there never was a difference. I've never I've been a pretty confident person in my fighting because I've been doing it long enough and I've had so many fights. You know, I have uh, a large uh, amateur background, so I've had lots of fights. I have over twenty fights. You know, it doesn't show on my pro record, but um, you know, so I was pretty mentally prepared. Um, I can say in the atmosphere, it's completely different, though. Like, I'm ready to fight, whether it's one person watching or thousands of people watching. You know, I the nerves were the same. Like, you get a little nervous, but that's it. But you could really feel the energy when I fought in Omaha. Like, it's completely different. Like, I almost felt empowered by the fans because they're yelling and screaming, excited to see you fight, you know. Um, that's the only thing I could say is different. Like, the fans really could, like, you could really feel what's going on out there, whereas when you're fighting with just 10 people watching, there's no extra excitement. But as for being prepared, I'm, I was ready for whatever. Like, it didn't feel any different during the fight or before the fight. Our guest is UFC fighter, local MMA fighter from Puyallup, Washington, John Albert. Now, John, you're 7-2 in your MMA career. You just got past Dustin Pegg in December at the Tough 14 finale, and then you put on one heck of a fight against Ivan Menjivar. You came away with the loss, 
but most people thought it was round of the year so far. Uh, how have you felt about your UFC career right now? As Kevin mentioned earlier, you're one and one. You're looking better every time you're out there. Do you feel that progression? Do you feel like you're getting better every time you step inside that cage? Uh, absolutely. You know, coming on to the Ultimate Fighter, like regionally, I thought I was pretty good fighting here in Washington. You know, it was really hard to find me pro fights. No one really wanted to fight me. You know, I don't. I'd only lost once as an amateur in 15 fights, and uh, I dislocated my rib against that Roy Bradshaw, and that so I didn't really lose that fight fighting him. I just dislocated my rib in the middle of the fight. And, um, you know, and then going on the show, everyone was so good. Like, and then when I fought Dawson, I really got to see what the talent level was outside of Washington. And it was pretty extensive. Like they're really good guys. And I could see, I mean, you saw Peg and TJ and he went all three rounds with him and it was a, it was a tough battle, you know, and he fought through and then I go out there and get it done in a, in a minute, you know, and that just showed my progression. I could really, I could really feel it and see it in my fights how I got better. And then I fought Ivan, who I feel is easy top 10 in the world. He's fighting Ren and Burrell right now for the number one contender spot, you know, right. and I had him against the ropes, you know, I was inches away from victory against a guy that's going to fight for the number one spot. So I could definitely see my progression and, and the skill sets getting better and better, especially now being able to train full time. Wrapping things up with our guest, John Albert. John, I've seen some rumors floating around online right now about a potential upcoming opponent for you. Uh, I think the date being mentioned is June first at uh, at a tough finale. Is there any news you'd like to throw out there for the listeners? Yeah, uh, paperwork's being sent out. It's it's on a verbal confirmation right now with Sean Shelby, but I will will be fighting Byron Bloodworth uh, June first at the Palms for the tough fifteen finale. Uh, I think it'll be a good fight. Um, he, he's another regional fighter who did really well in his region, and then he he stepped up to fight uh, Mike Easton. Um, in a short notice fight, you know, he took it on one week's notice, you know, whether he was training prior or he literally took it on one week, you know, we don't know. So I think he's, he's going to be underrated in this fight. And I think it's going to be a great fight between us actually, because he's got the same kind of style as I do. So I'm actually looking forward to it. I was, I'm ready. I'm ready to get into their scrap, man. I thought they they told me not till late June, uh, early July. And then I got the call for early June fight. So I was really stoked. Well, you're doing well, John, for for a kid from Rogers High School. We, we, we wish you the best in your upcoming fight. I, I'm very appreciative and happy that you joined us on the radio today, and we'll be rooting for you uh, at the June uh, Tough Finale fight. Yeah, thanks a lot, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks, John. Thanks for coming on with us. And that's John Albert. They call him the Prince. He's from Puyallup, Washington. Good guy. Nice young fighter. Good to have him on. Yeah, he had a lot to say. I think it'll be interesting to follow him and his mixed martial arts uh, as as we go forward. You know, he's only 7-2. and two. Kid out of Rogers High School in Puyallup, Washington. So if you're into local MMA and you're a big Northwest fight fan, John Prince Albert. Guy to watch out for. Check him out June 1st, the Ultimate Fighter live finale. It's going to be in Las Vegas. That'll do it for this week. It's, yep, uh, it's a two-round show. Ultimate Fighter... Uh, Special. I liked it. If we were Ian McCall, we'd get jobbed. There would be a draw, and we probably would have to fight at a later date. Ian McCall and uh, Demetrius Johnson will be in Fort Lauderdale, by the way, just to drop that on you. Next week, UFC on Fuel 2. We're going to recap that for you. Bellator 65, a recap of that. And then we're going to get into UFC 145, Rashad Evans and John Jones. And then Bellator 66, another huge fight weekend for fans. That's Marcus Schmidley from MMAinterviews.tv. I'm Kevin Mendelson. We are the MMA Cutmen. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Ah!